strong philosophy around test and learn, and in fact, you know, it's a great insight because I feel that a small tweak is in the tweak in mindset, and that businesses actually have to have a mindset of test, and which is essentially what you're saying is test and learn, and keep a control. And I know we do it on campaign basis, but yours is much deeper. And we did yeah. see the direct numbers go up by about yeah. you know three or four percent. Um, yeah. So we think that was due to just having a more focused email on that. And then it rose, and then it's consistently every every week we're above every single week, and like like a massively less volume of work. So you do a lot less yeah. work. Yeah. You let you piss off people less and get more revenue. Bullseye. It's what everything's about, Stuart. It's what marriage is about: high perceived value, low cost rewards. That's, the, <laughs> that's, that's my Christmas. That's my Christmas list. That's my that's my Christmas motto. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be to your wife, Ian. Hi, I'm Ian Pringle, and this is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty. We help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we like to talk about most, which is loyalty and loyalty programs. In this podcast, we'll explore how small tweaks and changes to a loyalty program can make a big difference. To help me with this, I'm joined by an expert panel who have all made a few tweaks in their time, so please welcome Stuart Dennis. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Ian. Hi, listeners. And uh, Phil Gunter. Hi, Phil. Good morning, Ian. And uh, Craig Grimshaw. Hi, Craig. G'day, Ian. G'day, listeners. And uh, Adam Posner. Hi, Adam. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Brilliant. So who would like to kick us off tonight? Um, Adam, how about you go first this time? Oh, great. Thanks uh, for getting me going and uh, a great topic. And, and, and uh, <laughs> I love the topic, except it's interesting to me say, you know, small tweaks, uh, big differences, and it's all contextual. You know, some some programs that I work with, uh, when I say, here's a small tweak, they think that's a, it's a big a big thing to do. But one of the the greatest little ones that I've noticed recently is um, making preferences uh, in in building and understanding your member and uh, building up your preference data. I saw a great example of this um, when uh, it's not really a client, but a brand called Booktopia um, got me onto their onto their little club and into their into their buying cycle and asked me all my preferences: what you know, what books I read, uh, what cycle of newsletter did I want to receive. And a whole range of questions, and it was amazing. And one of the preferences I put there was um, self-development, and you know um, those sort of self-help books. And within two hours, within two hours, my email was full of um, self-help books, preference, uh, you know, stuff that I wanted to read, very tailored, very specific. And I bought one immediately. So you know, whilst I was watching what they were doing. It was just a small tweak that I think they they made in their preference setting and made the, the email very relevant um, and an immediate sale. So I guess the point I'm making is small tweaks in understanding your member in asking a few more questions in the preference setting um, and then sending tailored comms out of that. It sounds like basic stuff 101, but a small tweak like that could ex- escalate you know, the result and the response rate. Yeah, and with modern CRM systems, you could get that done in a morning. You know, you could get that thing out, get it, get it, get it back. Happy days. Yeah, like a few of us, we've been around for a little while. Um, and I remember when I first started out, there was always the preferences, and you had to tick a box and which one you liked and which one you didn't like, and all that stuff. Nothing ever happened to it, mm-hmm. and and it was got to the point where you're going, don't do it because you want to have as minimal disruption to the onboarding of a customer. And also, you don't want to have put a false representation to the customer that if you give me preferences, I'm going to do something with it. The thing I've seen now is, and it's going on to your comment, Ian, um, about modern CRMs, you can do it so quickly now. 
back in the day, <laughs> um, you could never do it. It was such yeah, a mongrel yeah. thing. So it wasn't a small tweak. It was a gigantic thing to do. And there was never this preference um, capability to tailor the messaging. It had to be so laborious, whereas now there is that capability. But you've got to make sure that if you are capturing your preferences, that you do something with it. And that's yeah. the thing I find um, really frustrating when people give you or you give people data about yourself and nothing ever comes out of it. I love the yep. Booktopia example, Adam. I reckon it's a ripper. If you've got the, within two hours, you got your self-help piece. I was just surprised you didn't get the loyalty. Um, wasn't one of the things in there. <laughs> well, if I was setting up the preferences, I would have certainly put that as one of the options. But, you know, um, I'm, I was, I'm the customer this time. Exactly. And uh, Stuart, how about you? Let's go with finance one, Stuart. Are you going off piece? Uh, I, I, I'll... I'll <laughs> I'll give you a quick finance one and then I'll go off for a second one. Um, <laughs> pricing's a finance one. So pricing's an easy change, uh, particularly for those that have like external reward stores with gift vouchers and uh, uh, vacuum cleaners and toasters. No one cares about the price of what they are. Um, the people that care are really, you know, people looking to cash out anyway. And um, and I think you can just tweak up your pricing so that you're basically the same as your competitors and uh, even a little bit higher and uh, no one's going to really notice and you can quite easily make a little bit of extra money each year. So that's that's my finance one. You, you know what, Stuart, it's a really good one because um, when I was at, in, a, in a Lord's program, we did a really nice piece of analysis which said, what was the price on your, the price of the margin on redemption and then what people did after redemption? And there were, there were certain products that were off the scale where they were charging low 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 margin and customers disappeared afterwards. And we were thinking, guys, you can price that at twice the price because they're just cashing out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Happy. Yeah, we had the same thing at uh, at Velocity at Virgin Australia. It was just it was easy just to sneak up the pricing and probably generate nearly a million dollars worth of extra point sales, um, points redemption volume. No, that's that a year. great so, one. It, yeah, it was very. Yeah, the other big one I'm going to talk about is email cadence. Um, so cadence is probably about, you know, frequency, the types of offers and, um, also the time zone for receipting by the customer. So it probably goes to extension from Adam's booktopia preference example, but at, uh, at Virgin America in the US, this was an interesting one. You know, I got there, they thought they had the really cool, funky emails. They had great colors, little, you know, emoji kind of people that, that you know, you signed up and you just selected yourself. Um, but they had this really mix of almost daily emails going out with partner offers in them um, and airline offers being secondary to partner offers when the airline had a massive sale going on and needed support. And the emails would just blast send it out each day based on Californian time zone. So we changed up the frequency. We, we, we got rid of daily and moved it out to three a week. One of those was a dedicated airline sales email. And we recognized that people were booking, the biggest volume were booking and, and the sales with all the airlines were Tuesdays at midday. And so the Tuesday morning email became purely about the airline sale. Nothing else was in there. We did a Monday and either a Thursday or a Friday, depended on other days that we tried to, you know, might have been a public holiday or, or a special day, um, you know, um, some sort of a celebration. Um, so we, we, we staggered the, the rest of the email content around, um, you know, those other days. So that, that changed up the, 
the frequency and the offers. So we found our actual disengagement rates, our unsubscribe rates nearly halved just from doing that. So we went from about a 4% unsubscribe down to about 2%. So, and that was um, just because you cut the frequency. Cut, cut the frequency and got the relevance and the focus in the offers. So, um, um, so people knew what they were getting. They just weren't getting a bunch of dribble, the same stuff every day. There was actually a reason for it. You know, that Tuesday one was the airline sale. The other ones were specific to partner offers. So, um, so that was, that was simply by doing that. And then, we increased the open rates by looking at the receipting time zone. So we found that we were just sending out emails from California at 9 a.m. California time. That was midday in New York and, and you know, you know, 11 in um, 10 or 11 in um, the other central states. So what we started to do was to stagger people by their state and their time zone and look at when they were opening the emails. Most people go to work and they'll open the emails at the end of the day. If they get home at the end of the day and you send them an email, you know, um, four or five hours earlier, that's, you know, 10 emails down in their inbox. They're just going to click through it. So we, we started sending them so they hit the, the person's email inbox closer to about 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon so that it was at the top, in the top few emails that they would get when they got home. And, um, and so we started sending them at like, you know, 1.30 California time, which is to the New York people, which is 4.30 p.m. their time. And we increased the open rates that way. Yeah, so, um, so really interesting one to think about when, you, when you've got multiple time zones of your customers. Think about Again, the, really the time that they're opening. Really easy yeah, to do. Yeah, really easy to yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, happy to. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. It's true. The, um, just on the booking, t- when you moved from the airline to the Tuesday, did you notice that people were booking for the airfares through the frequent flyer program or was it fr- through the main airline was, website? Yeah, more, we wanted to get more direct. We had, um, we had had a quite a bit of OTA booking and yeah. so it was about driving more direct bookings as well. And we did yeah. see the direct numbers go up by about, yeah. you know, three or four percent. Um, yeah. so we think that was due to just having a more focused email on that. So, nice. um, and, and yeah, just aligning it with what everyone else in the market was doing at the time. Uh, two good ones there, Stuart. Yeah. Mm. Good. Uh, Craig, how, like how about you? Yeah, mine's more, um, customer engagement piece. So one of the things that, uh, is, and it is a small tweak, it's sort of a, a carry on from one of the Stu, one of Stu's comments around pricing for rewards. Uh, what we've done is uh, for two of our programs that we've been running um, is actually provide a reduce, sorry, a better um, reward pricing for tiered members. So instead of everyone having the same pricing for a reward, uh, say a toaster or an airfare, um, if you were in a higher tier, you actually got better pricing for that fare or for that toaster because we wanted to get those people earning, uh, sorry, redeeming and getting better engagement of them and give them a better option, a better benefit for being in that tier as well. And that's resonated really well. It doesn't, you don't get, and you may get some margin loss over the um, the normal tiers, but what you're doing is looking after those customers who are flying you with you a lot or spending with you a lot. And we notice that the um, tenure of those customers is, is longer than those who aren't in the tier. What you find is um, most Platinum gold members with airlines don't care about toasters and vacuum cleaners. Yeah, but if they've exactly. got a massive amount of points balance and it's coming up to Christmas or Mother's Day or something like that, 
they will cash out some points to buy that because they're cheap. And, cheap um, exactly. They've got yeah. too many points to worry about. Yeah. And uh, someone like Phil would do that for his wife. High perceived value, low cost is where it's at. Uh, I'll, tell you one that's, I'll tell you one that's, that, that, that relates to that, that we used to do, that I, I think is a really good, good practice, is the perceived value of mile. And the perceived value of mile is if you ask a thousand of your customers or just send a survey out and you say, what would you prefer? A thousand points or $10 or 10 pounds? What would you prefer? 500 points or three pounds? What would you prefer? And you just ask them six questions and, and you do that three or four times a year. And what it comes back with is a line that crosses where people have a preference for money and people then have a preference for miles. And it's amazing how, how accurate you can be and when you start changing the program, and to your point, Stuart and, and Craig, by tier, you'll see that the perceived value of a mile is different. And and it's not it, it's not going to change the world, but what it does do is it gives you an absolute feeling for what the perceived value of your currency is. Mm. And uh, because you you know we all know that the that the, that the value of a of a mile in a in an airline is a very peculiar thing, right? Because the value on the on the on the on the money on the books is very different from the value that you're giving to your partners and also it's very different from the from the value that customers may get a, you know may may have a have an idea in the head about what it is and it was a really really good piece of work um and i think uh, you know we used to track it track it uh every year for many years and you could therefore see it over time happy days yeah. Yeah. nice yeah. and again dead easy and it, to do. And, and you also want to see the value of the <laughs> the value of the mile or the point as as they get to expiry, or as they get to a tier um, tier downgrade, because then suddenly they go, bah, that's an irrational behaviour, yeah. and it's one of the, uh, one of the things that I, I still don't um, think people understand enough is around the irrationality of loyalty programs and how mm-hmm. the rational behaviour it gets um, influenced by a tier downgrade or a, or points expiry or whatever it is. They, they, people suddenly do all this irrational behaviour. And if you talk to the accountant, Stuart, they don't they don't understand that irrationality, and it's it's really interesting just having those conversations. And we've all seen that irrationality. We should do a podcast on irrational behaviour because we've all seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. because we're all stage. human and everybody's irrational. That's the end of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very true. It's very true. But programs make some stupid decisions sometimes that force some of that behaviour to occur as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a good topic for another time, are you? Yeah. yeah. Is that I, the unintended consequences that Phil keeps talking about? We, yeah. we, should, we should do a podcast on unintended consequences. There's many. Yeah. No, the dumb oh, decisions yeah. is where you have expected consequences and they still do them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Phil, how about you? What, what, what are yours you bring? Oh, so my, mine is a, is a very simple one. Mine is, is identify key points of friction and remove them. So it's very simple. Um, and what I mean by a key point of friction is what do people complain about? What do people query? And uh, I'll, I'll give you a very simple one. It's when we put in the, the e-store for Virgin. So we were early to the e-store. Uh, we put one in. And like many others, there was like a 70-day from when you did your transaction to when you got your points. And of course, of course, there was a reason to that, the accountants. That, you know, there, there, there was, that was the period where... We, we we could be sure that they wouldn't return the goods and get the money back, etc. Right? But my God, there was a lot of questions and queries and, and it smelt wrong. Right. So we took the risk 
we took we brought the, the the time frame down to a normal time frame i forget what it was like 10 days a week um, yeah, and then yeah something like that it might have been three days but um we then we then carried the risk that they would return those goods and and uh, get the money back and we justified it by quantifying the cost of all the queries and complaints against the cost of of the the small number of returns and yeah. it was an easy business case um, so it saves money and it stops pissing people off and it makes a, a, a new proposition much, much more easier to understand and, and, and better for the customer. And I just gobsmacked that no one else does it. And, the rest and of the world, they still have this 70 days. Yeah. And we, we also tried to do it, Phil, for um, you know, missing points when people submitted a claim that they hadn't got their points from the flight with you know, any other partner or, or you know, airline partner, remember. Um, but um, a lot of the a lot of the airline other people wouldn't allow us. But um, you know the the lesson was basically don't let an issue or a problem between you and your partner, be it system technical whatever process wise, get in the way of your relationship. You know with your customer. Customer. So, yeah. um, but but it's two things, Stuart. You're right. One is that, but and the other one is understand this big risk lever. Yeah, so yeah. There's, there's a lot of people running programs don't understand risk and don't understand yeah. basic maths, right? So just do the maths and and understand the maths and understand what risk you're taking and then do something good for the customer. Easy. Yeah. I agree. The risk piece is, oh, it's a risky and that's it. And so as soon as someone says it's risky, it's this mammoth thing rather than saying, well, let's quantify what the risk is and make a decision rather than going, it's risky, we won't do it. And so you need to quantify. Bang on, Phil, because I just, I get frustrated with people Putting on the if it's risky, they won't have a go and look at how they can enhance a member proposition. They'll just go, "No, we won't do it." I mean, other other programs do do it, Phil. So in the in the UK, Quidco do it, where they have a they have a premium tier that you can pay for. But if you ab- and, and therefore you get the points straight away. But if oh. you abuse it, um, then you then you then you lose that status. And so so there's a there's a sort of quid pro quo. There's 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 right. Well, you get premium, but if you if if you abuse it, then you don't get that again. Yeah, um, and and a lot of people. I I don't know if they, I think a lot of programs they worry about abuse way more than it than it. Yeah, there. there's always a little happens. bit, right? But yeah. uh, uh, track it, measure it, understand it, and then um, sort of deal with it. But um, yeah. generally, a lot of decisions are about eliminating risk, and it shouldn't. I'll, I'll give you another similar one, but about point of friction. Um, I'm a great fan of standing behind glass and listening to to to, to, to people tell you what's what what frustrates them, right? And I remember a guy, uh, and he, he was saying it really, really. So this is an airline one, but it really, really annoys him when he turns up at the airport. He's had a really crap day. He just wants to get home, and he they, he goes to the check in, and they say, "Yeah, it's two hundred bucks to get on that earlier flight." And he, he was he was literally livid, saying. 200 bucks, the seat's there, it's empty. I'm here, I just want to get home. And the whole industry relied on the fact that people pay more for a flexible ticket. But I haven't seen the guy pretty much lose it on something which I thought, actually, like from a a humanistic point of view, he's got a really good point. So we, we took a lot of... A lot of uh, persuading to get Redman to agree, but eventually we put it in called Fly Ahead, and it basically said, Golden above, if you turn up, uh, you can get on a, an earlier flight. Um, and we tracked it and tracked it and tracked it, and it, it paid off. There, what we found was people that 
previously got flexible tickets were still buying flexible tickets for all the other reasons you get with flexible tickets because that was the big risk the big fear that people would start trading down buying the cheapest tickets they still bought the flexible tickets a lot of people still bought a, a basic to, uh, a, a standard ticket a less flexible ticket in the morning but coming home they were still buying the flexible tickets and the, the, the but those moments in time where people did rock up and they really did want to get home it it solved but it also unintended positive benefit it then brought forward capacity which meant there was yeah. more capacity later on and if you know it's got to be for all thing. sorts of reasons it's better yeah. better for the airline it's got to be a yeah. good thing I've got I've got a similar story to that where um when I was working in airline there was a very very senior there was a friend of mine colleague of mine who was flying with a very very senior member of staff and he got to the desk and the things didn't go that way um and uh, and he said to the person behind the sta- behind the desk do you know who I am and the lady behind the counter got on the got on the, ta- the thing and <laughs> called security and said there's a guy here who doesn't know who he is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. Yeah, these guys, these, yeah. Um, Anyway, I've got a couple as well. So the first is um, Fallow Cell. Um, These, both of mine are in in, in analytics. And the Fallow Cell is basically a large control group. So a large control group is is where you, is a Fallow Cell is where you don't send any communications from one particular channel to, to to a segment of customers, anything. So I mean, you you have a fellow self for email, you have a fellow self for, and it amazes me how many programs don't have this because what it allows you to do is it allows you to completely measure the effectiveness of a channel. So because you've got 1% of your customers that get no email at all, all of a sudden you can understand the impact email has. And actually, if you're you're good at it, you can then also um, segment your collection emails and your redemption emails and your expiry emails and and then because then you can see the impact of all of those as well and what impact they're having and it, it and it suddenly shows how effective or ineffective your marketing department is because the marketing department get obsessed with sending messages out and messages out and messages out but they have no idea i mean of course you have control groups but we all know control groups get contaminated so um and and the of course, having 1% of your group means you can't send 1%, you get 1% less less volume out there. But actually, it has an amazing effect and a very, very, very useful tool. And of course, you can have a fallow cell for email and every channel. And and it's so simple. All you'd all we did was simply don't send any emails to members whose numbers finish one zero. That's easy. You don't have to worry about segmenting it. You just all of a sudden you don't send anything out. And then you keep that fallow cell in there for six months, and then the next next six months you change that to two one one two or three zero or something, so that you constantly you've got a base of customers you send nothing to, and it's amazing what what results you can see. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. it's a it's a strong philosophy around test and learn, and in fact, you know, it's a great insight because I feel that a small tweak is in the tweaking mindset. And that businesses actually have to have a mindset of test, and which is essentially what you're saying is test and learn and keep a control. And I know we do it on campaign basis, but yours is much deeper, much um, deep. Ian. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I just think clients generally, and it, it just depends on their uh, attitude to test and learn instead of just sending out everything and maxing out their base. Um, and they need to have that intense belief in wanting to learn incrementally. Um, and after 28 years of data marketing, I always remember that you need to have clients who are patient, 
patient because you've got to wait to test and learn and see what you can incrementally improve. Patient and also willing to invest in not sending to that group. So you're investing in not sending. So there's a couple of inherent mindsets that your clients need to have in order to do what you've suggested, but not only at a big base, like you said, but even campaign by campaign. Um, and the yeah, I'm not I, sure if all of you guys say see that. Do you see your clients being willing to test and learn? <laughs> Some. Well, <laughs> so, so, not, yeah. not a lot. Not a lot. It's about it's what you say about patience, right? Because mm. what I've I've just done a or a middle of doing it really, but um, a big trial where the one of the big issues was a bit like Stuart was saying before, just sending out loads and loads of emails, right? And because they were tracking people that purchases within a, one single day of that every email, and they're sending out daily emails, um, then it was proven, absolutely proven, that the more they send, the more they get. Yeah. Right? And in, in fact, me and, me and Ian, we've got another client in, uh, that has, has proven that you send two a day. Right? And, <laughs> but, no, but, but, but this is where the patients come in. So the, 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 um, the, the client that we're working on does every daily one. Uh, over a period of time, we've taken a completely different approach to email to a group, to a big significant sample. And we're sending less emails. Um, we're, we've, we've dropped the volume by about 70%. Right? We've dropped less emails. And instead of shouting offers, always in this tagline, offer, 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 offer buy now, there's a, a, a completely different approach to what the email's saying. And, we're, and it's more of an educational thing with offers interspersed um and what we found which is fascinating right that is that when we track them on the on the on the old score of what people are buying within a day it looked like they were underperforming but we track the actual revenue of the customer group and and it's now been consistently outperforming significantly yeah, that's good. Yeah, and that's and good. so this is this is fascinating because in the industry we we've known there's a drift towards send more, send more, send, send more. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's hard and, to justify not to because you have to. And it's hard to justify not to because yeah. if you're measuring right at the call, you know, if you if you're measuring who clicked on that one and bought today, it looks like it's working, and it and it's not working, right? But you need yeah. someone who's patient. It's, it's taken us six months. Yeah, to, to put it in, educate people a little bit over over the first the first four weeks. It was a, it was a, it was a hairy ride as as the numbers went, um, and then it, it rose, and then it's consistently every every week we're above every single week, and like like a massively less volume of work. So you do a lot less yeah. work. Yeah. You let you piss off people less and get more revenue. Bullseye. Yeah. Wow! But it took patience. How'd you convince them? How'd you convince them? I, I, all we needed one one region that was a believer and and allowed yeah. us to do uh, the the trial over time. Two things: mindset and patience. Absolutely, no question. A believer, I agree. But the other one I had, um, Adam, was building on yours as well. Is about is about insight too. Was that um, I've worked with a number of clients where insight and analytics are in a different place and often in different ah. teams and often have different mm -hmm. bosses. And I just don't get that, right? Nah. If you want to understand your your customers, really understand them, you've got to have insight and analytics on the same page, right? Mm -hmm. Because I've worked with clients where insight and analytics are working on completely different projects with completely different segments. In fact, I've had clients with, with 120 segments. They get to 120 segments because 
The research guys have got some segments they're working on and the insight guys have other segments they're working on. And because there's different segmentations, each with ten or two, each with oh. eight or ten segments, you get to 120 segments quite easily. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Put your uh. insight and analytics guys together because yeah. for the same cost, you get twice or three times the insight. Um, because you, we all know it's not about behavior or, or um, attitudes. It's about both. Get them mm. together. Get them together. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, I totally agree. It's almost easy, like you've got easy, two, easy. Uh, one engine going one, one way, one engine going the other way, and they're pulling mm. at the same rope. Yeah, and sometimes believe different things, and that's brilliant. Oh. If you if you if your insight and your behaviors guy believe in different things, get them in one room and get them talking yeah. out because yeah. then th- th- you, th- that can't be right. But somewhat, yeah. but there will be a there will be and in there there'll be gold. In there there'll yeah. be really good stuff. There'll be good learning. Yeah, yeah. totally agree. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, does anyone have any else else before we before yeah we i've got to... one but it's most probably in Stu's domain and and he can he can um give Ooh, me dangerous. A, a, dangerous accounting and professional point of view but i just um am finishing a program with a client and we're looking at all their benefits and i just said to them you know let's look at them from two points of view cost and flexibility low cost so i did a grid a little, little matrix you know low cost high cost Flexible, inflexible, and let's map where your program, where your benefits sit. And if too many are sitting in the high cost, inflexible, well, guess what? <laughs> That's going to draw down a lot of blood out of your out of your out of your finances. And whilst I'm not a, a steward or a finance guy, just when I did that, it was a small tweak to a conversation when they were all pushing for all these fancy stuff. And and when you saw it on a, on a little four by four, uh, you know, grid. Uh, suddenly it just hit them in the face. Okay, so let's work with more with the flexible, you know, flexible rewards, which are low cost. Gee, let's see if we can balance more of those and bring in one or only two, you know, high cost, inflexible ones. And suddenly that small tweak in their conversation changed, you know, the, the basis of their program um, in terms of from a cost point of view. And I mean, I know Stu it's, most probably could uh, add a lot to that. Look, I think uh, great, great exercise from a consulting yeah. point of view, Adam, because I think too many people with programs or trying to invent new programs let the marketing team run off with all these great ideas and never come back and actually do the business case around it or, or analyze things like that, cost and flexibility. Um, like you've got to make it easy for your customers and, and you're better off keeping it simple. And, um, and the lower cost you can make it, and the higher perceived value, which is what yeah. points programs are all about, um, you know, it uh, it works for everyone. It's what everything's yeah. about, Stuart. It's what marriage is about: high perceived value, low cost rewards. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's my Christmas. That's my Christmas list. That's my that's my Christmas motto. <laughs> I pity your wife, Ian. Pity her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, on, on that Bob's show, I'd like to thank our guest tonight. So, thanks, like Adam. Thank you very much, Adam. Adam Posner. Thanks. Thanks, Phil Gunter. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> Ian. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart Dennis. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Craig Grimshaw. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ian. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, then, guys. We'll see you soon. If you like this podcast, please like, share, or comment using the hashtag #TheLawtyPodcast. And thank you for listening. And uh, goodbye.